most probable configuration is the one that can be achieved in the most number of ways. Uh, student questions. I'd like to know some of the applications of knowing the most probable energy state of a group of particles. So once we do this, we can calculate the distributions as a function of energy so we can understand the cosmic microwave background radiation or radiation from any hot object or calculate anything we need to know about finite temperature objects. <coughs> I don't see why occupation numbers have to be large before we can invoke, invoke Stirling's approximation. Um, so there's a related question somewhere. several approximations to get the final results. It doesn't, however, say anything about the ranges in which those approximations are valid. It says large numbers, but how big is large? A thousand, a million, a mole. So the occupation numbers have to be large to use Stirling's formula. And how large depends on how accurate you want to be. So if, you, if n is 5, then you're good within 25%. If it's 100, then you're good within a couple percent. So 100 is a large number. But if you want to be more, more accurate than that, then you need a 1,000 or a mole. For a mole, it's a pretty good approximation. Does the most probable configuration mean that it is the configuration in which the most disorder occurs? So I think you're thinking about entropy. So entropy, as entropy increases, disorder increases. Didn't understand the meaning and purpose of the Lagrange multiplier method. So say that you had some function of x and y, and you wanted to find the maximum of that function. But say that you wanted to find it on a particular <coughs> curve, y equals x squared. So I want to find the maximum on this plane, but it has to be the maximum only on the line inside the plane. So you could uh, find the maximum and then go along, plot that as a function going along the line. That's one way to do it. The other way to do it would be to add to this function lambda times y minus x squared, and then maximize over the three variables, x, y, and lambda. Why is that a good thing to do? We'll call this g. I calculate dg dy, or dg d lambda, I get y minus x squared. To calculate the maximum, I'm setting that to zero. So it's just a trivial way of, when you're maximizing, imposing some constraint. You add one more variable that you have to maximize over, but that imposes, since it only appears linearly, it imposes this constraint. When you find the maximum, you automatically satisfy that. Griffith says that the fundamental assumption of statistical mechanics is that every distinct state with the same energy is equally probable. Is he only talking about the microcanonical ensemble? So since we're talking about a fixed total energy rather than an average energy, microcanonical ensemble. But uh, that's stat mech, using those fancy words. So you learned that in another course. Didn't hear it from me. At the bottom of the page, 236, Griffiths switches from working with the function q to log q. Why can he make this approximation? 
So this is not an approximation. This is not approximately equal to that. But log is a monotonic function. So finding the maximum of this with respect to the variables is the same as finding the maximum of this with respect to the variables. The section uses several approximations, so we did that one. Where do you post the actual page interval you want us to cover for these assignments? I'm getting tired of guessing based on the content of the first question. Where is my browser? So if you look at the page, <laughs> okay. Is it random where the electron can be found, or is it always in the most probable state? What is equilibrium? So, uh, just like it's possible for all the air molecules to be in one corner, it's not the most likely thing. So, statistical mechanics gives you a way of estimating probabilities <laughs> being in equilibrium. On top of that, there's quantum mechanics. These are quantum mechanical states, so there's wave functions. So there's a statistical probability and a quantum mechanical probability. So it's all random, but you can calculate the probabilities statistically and quantum mechanically. Okay, so last time we were discussing white dwarfs. And we found <coughs> that we could balance the gravitational energy with the uh, the Fermi pressure, the gravitational pull with the Fermi pressure, and you find some radius. So a white dwarf has this very small radius, so it's a very dense star uh, for a typical number, typical star size. But uh, what we noticed is that with that number of atoms in the star, you get some energy which is pretty large. It's uh, like one-third of the rest energy of the electron, which means these electrons are starting to become relativistic. And if I add more atoms to the star, then the radius gets smaller, so it gets squeezed harder. That means this energy goes up quickly. So if I keep adding things, atoms to the white dwarf, it gets smaller, but the Fermi energy gets bigger, and then it's going to be relativistic, and this approximation will not work. So a simple thing to do would be to take the ultra-relativistic limit. So instead of taking 1 half mv squared, we take the square root of p squared plus m squared, the appropriate factors of the speed of light. And if the momentum is very large, then this is just approximately momentum times the speed of light. Then we can just redo that uh, Fermi free electron gas calculation, but instead of uh, putting in that the energy is k squared, putting the energy goes like k. It's relativistic. And then we could do the integration again, and now we'll get fourth power of k, because we've lost one power of momentum. So we'll get a slightly different formula for the energy, and we'll go like a different power of n now, four-thirds instead of five-thirds. So if we put that back into the total energy, the piece from uh, the Fermi sphere and the piece from the gravitational potential. Now they scale with the same power of R. <coughs> so 
this coefficient is bigger than this one, then it will expand. This one is smaller, then it will contract. So you, it's a matter of working out those coefficients. And there's some critical condition where they're equal, where it's in balance. And they depend on different powers of the number of atoms. So there's a critical <coughs> number of atoms. 2 times 10 to the 57. It gets bigger than that, then it will just crunch. And that's roughly occurs for 1.7 solar masses. So that's approximate calculation of the limit of a white dwarf. Here's the the full horribly oh, yellow. Uh, here's the full calculation. On my screen, it's green. <laughs> Something wrong with this projector. You can figure out what color is not working. Uh, <laughs> well, this one's red on my screen. Uh, so the full calculation is this curve here. So we, here was the non-relativistic calculation we did, where there's always a balance. So if you do the full relativistic calculation, there's some maximum mass around 1.4 solar masses. So if you get beyond that, your white dwarf will implode. So no one's seen a white dwarf bigger than that. So non-relativistic material wouldn't implode? Right. Again. Just there'd always be a stable radius without relativity. So Chandrasekhar won the Nobel Prize in 1983 for this calculation. So another reason to learn quantum mechanics, win the Nobel Prize. And this actually happens, people think, uh, that there are lots of cases where there's a white dwarf with a companion red giant. And then the red giant, when it expands, it starts getting sucked into the white dwarf. And then eventually you'll go past the limit and it'll crunch down. And what hap that's they think what happens then is you get a type 1a supernova, which is used for measuring the accelerated expansion of the universe. But that's, that's cosmology, really. Yeah? Why doesn't it go down? Why isn't there another stable state, like a neutron star stable state? That's a different case. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> if you have... Uh, <coughs> a regular core collapse supernova that just the star basically explodes and then you can uh, what happens is you, when you compress the electrons with the protons you can get past this limit and the protons through weak interactions with the electrons turn into neutrons plus neutrinos the neutrinos fly out carrying most of the energy and if you were standing nearby, you'd be killed by neutrino radiation. But now, you can repeat the calculation. All you have to do is take, replace the electron mass by the neutron mass. Now you have a Fermi sphere filled up with neutrons. And there's uh, one, free neutron, one free neutron per neutron. Uh, so if you take the, roughly the same number of atoms, you find the radius of a neutron star is 12 kilometers. So that's, that's a star inside of 12 kilometers. That's very dense. And if you work out the Fermi energy, it's 56 MeV compared to the rest energy of a neutron, 940 MeV. So the non-relativistic approximation works well for neutron stars. And so we don't, well, it would be very hard to get to the corresponding Chandrasekhar limit for neutron stars.
but I guess if you did, then you could get to a black hole or something even scarier than a neutron star. For any questions? Quantum mechanics is so cool. <laughs> but some people, some people like solid state. Anyone? There's some people here who like solid state. One, One person. <laughs> so, in our Fermi gas approximation, we neglected the um, coulomb potential due to the nucleus and the repulsion of the electrons. Uh, and we said that was good for long wavelengths because we can't probe those short distance scales. But if we start getting up to larger momenta, then we start to probe shorter distances. So we could put in uh, the effect of the nuclei. So usually in a solid state, they form some regular lattice. So we could make the first approximation is a periodic potential. We'll just do a one-dimensional solid. And then Block showed that if you have a periodic potential, then you, um, the wave function shifted by the period would be some, you can write uh, the wave function as e to the i ka, the period, times the wave function you had before. And the proof is, I don't remember the proof. The proof is, uh, something like if you displace it to oh the proof is that displacement commutes with the Hamiltonian because it's periodic so if I displace it then it's the same thing again so you should be able to diagonalize the displacement operator and the Hamiltonian simultaneously but the displacement is not a Hermitian operator in general. So this could, K could be complex. So this is basically a trivial statement, right? If it has this operator commutes with the Hamiltonian so we can make simultaneous eigenstates, and then it has some eigenvalue, but it doesn't have to be real. So K is complex. This is an arbitrary number. So you didn't learn anything. Yeah? So it's complex. It's not two pi j over Right. But if we put it, if we have a very big guy, very big solid, then it shouldn't matter, the ends shouldn't matter if it's very big and we're in the middle. So then we could pretend that it's periodic. I mean, a, wrap it around an infinite circle or a very big circle. It wouldn't matter. If that was true, then it has to be a real, K has to be real because you could go all the way around and come back, basically. So for big solids, K should be very close to being a real number. And then the interesting thing, well, if you go around and all the way around the circle, then you find that K has to be uh, some integer over Na times 2 pi. So then, if we know that it's periodic, we just have to solve it in one little piece, and then we know it everywhere by this displacement. And we've already solved the particle in a box, the sines and cosines. But now we have a different boundary condition at the edge of the box. It's not, it doesn't have to be zero. It just has to match on to this displacement phase. 
so <clears throat> if I shift it over, I get the same wave function back up to a phase. And then putting in, well, what you derive from that is this horrible relation. Well, not horrible, but complicated. The way you get that is you demand that the wave function is continuous across the boundary. Uh, unless the potential, well, that's always true. Wave functions have to be continuous. And in this simple case where we use the delta function to represent the potential, then you can have a jump in the derivative. If you had a finite potential, then you could uh, you would demand that the derivative was continuous too. But since we have delta function, we get a jump in the derivative, and the jump is related to the integral, the potential times the wave function. Just get this by integrating the Schrodinger equation across the boundary. So in our case where the strength of the delta function is alpha, b was the coefficient in our wave function, multiplying the cosine, we only pick up a b. And so plugging in the wave function sine cosine, a, a sine b cosine into these conditions, so you get this guy. And the k dependence comes from this phase. On one side of the potential, there's a phase. So the interesting cases, oops. the interesting cases in bright red are k is approximately 2n high. Why is that? So this side is numbered between minus 1 and 1. This side can be arbitrarily large if we take k to be small. So you get some oscillating function on one side that has to be equal to a cosine, which is between minus 1 and 1. So, take k is n pi, then we get these uh, guys where we enter a band. So we're only allowed to be, we'll only find solutions in this range of k when we're in, when the <coughs> function is between the two blue lines. Then there'll be another range where we're in this guy, and so on. So by taking uh, n pi, we can pick out these band edges. So then you can just plot those wave functions because the wave functions are real for those magical values of k. And we don't have to do any complex thinking. So what you get is some wave function in bright red that looks like this. And uh, it has a kink here where the delta function looks. So why don't you get a solution when the momentum is slightly smaller? Well, to be periodic, so say I made this function come down a little slower and it matched onto here, then the jump in the derivative would be smaller than what matches our potential. So it's the strength of that um, potential that's determining the minimum jump in the derivative here. And that's what's setting, telling you that you get this band structure. And you can do the similar things for the other bands get interesting wave functions. So here's what you see in the book, roughly. That each of these intervals has a range of solutions of momentum, depending on what alpha and, um, and which choice of capital K you have. So 
you get allowed energy solutions in black or bright red, depending on which screen you're looking at. And then there's forbidden bands. So th there won't be energy eigenstates in these forbidden bands. You might be able to create a virtual quantum state for some incredibly short amount of time with the uncertainty principle, but you won't have propagating electrons except in these energy bands. And then if you get into the details, if, you're, if you fill up your Fermi sea of electrons right up to the top of this band, then say I give this electron here a kick because I want to make a current flow. Well, if I kick it a little, it can't go anywhere because there's no allowed state. I have to kick it all the way up to here. So it's very hard for those electrons to respond to an electric field. So that would make a good insulator. But if my Fermi C only, or if my Fermi sphere only fills up partway through the band, then if I give this little, this electron a little kick, it's got a place to go to, so it can respond to a small electric field. So that would mean it's a good conductor. <coughs> Are there any questions about solid state physics? Those so essentially n holes and p holes. Um, so if I kick if I kick an electron out of here up in here, then there's an empty state down here, which you can think of as being a hole. <coughs> so whenever I, I make put an electron up here, I create a hole, and you can imagine the holes propagating as well. So there's a little more to solid state than that. But not much more that we're going to talk about in this course. We might get to uh, calculating um, properties of semiconductors at the end, if we don't get too far behind. So quantum statistical, statistical mechanics. So since you guys have taken this in another course, I don't have to say anything. Just read the book. Um, so we want to look at systems that are in thermal, equi thermal equilibrium. And the assumption is that every distinct state with the same energy is equally probable. So if we have a bunch, our system is a bunch of one particle states. If we st stick to simple systems. then we can solve for the energy eigenvalues. So there's a ground state and then a first excited state, and so on. And we've seen that usually there's some degeneracies. There's different quantum states with the same energy. So we call that number the number of states with the same energy, d. 
and then there's some occupation number. So we can have, if we have more than one particle, we can have n sub 1 in the first energy state, n sub 2 in the second energy state. And this, if we knew what all those n's were, that's what you would call a configuration. It would tell you how the particles are distributed in the different energy states. So given a configuration, how many distinct states are there? So that's what Griffiths calls that the uh, Q. And to count how many states there are depends on whether the particles are distinguishable or indistinguishable, whether they're fermions or bosons. So particles are never distinguishable if we have one type of particle. They're either fermions or bosons. But uh, just to see how to do it wrong, we'll do the distinguishable case. So, if we look just at the first energy bin, that down if you want. There's a total energy. Um, so in the first energy bin we have n particles and we want to put n sub 1 particles into that bin. So the answer is n choose n sub 1. So I'm assuming everyone has seen this kind of combinatoric calculation before. So there's n factorial guys to choose from, where we divide by n sub 1 factorial and n minus n sub 1 factorial. That gives you the number of ways of putting n sub 1 chosen out of n guys, or n, how, the number of ways to pick n sub 1 out of n. And we can arrange them in different ways because they're distinguishable. Because there's d sub 1 different states with the same energy. So I can arrange them d sub 1 to the n sub 1 ways in those different states. In other words, there's d sub 1 choices on top of this combinatoric factor. And so you can write Q is the combinatoric factor n factorial over n sub 1 factorial n times n minus n1 factorial d1 to the n1 
that's the first energy bin. Infinity minus one left to go. So the next one is n one minus n minus n one factorial, because we've already used up n sub one. So we have n minus n sub one left to distribute. we have a d2 to the n2. And then we keep going. Um, we'll omit the infinite number of terms. But we see there's a simplification. So this n minus n1 factorial cancels that n minus n1 factorial. You said that was infinite? Well, assuming there's an infinite number of energy levels then we just keep writing on for infinity. So nothing cancels the d to the n1s, or di to the ni. So we'll have d1 to the n1, d2 to the n2, d3 to the n3. Nothing cancels these n sub 1 factorial, n sub 2 factorial sub 3 factorial. And so that is n factorial times an infinite product. fermions. So we have to anti-symmetrize our wave functions for fermions. That means it doesn't matter which electron is in which which state, because we have some, so many electrons in this energy bin. If we interchange those electrons, it doesn't do anything except put a minus sign in the wave function, because they're indistinguishable. So there's just one n-particle state. with a given set of uh, occupation numbers. And there's only one particle per state for one one particle one particle per one particle state. So given the degeneracy we can choose to put the n sub n of those into the different degenerate states. <coughs> dn choose n sub n ways. n sub n has to be less than <coughs> d sub n, because we can only put one fermion into each state. Once we have d sub n, then we've got all the states full.
So that's how many ways we can put n sub n into the nth energy bin. And so this case is really easy. Just have a product of these factors. There's a factorial there. <coughs> And there's one more case, and it's the hard case. <coughs> but uh, how often do you have to deal with bosons? Only if you have photons or Higgs bosons. So, yeah, most of the time. So, identical bosons. So now we get to symmetrize the wave functions. And so again, there's just one n-particle state. With a given set of occupation numbers. But there, yep. Um, so, so if I tell you how many uh, bosons are in each energy bin, then, or let me say it a different way. If I if I tell you how many bosons are in each. Um, state, each degenerate state for each energy bin. Interchanging the bosons between two, between two degenerate states doesn't change anything. So once I've specified that, I don't have to do any more counting because I don't care about interchanges. They're already included in the symmetrization of the wave function. So the difference with fermions is now there's no restriction on how many bosons we can put in a particular wave function. So, if we look at the nth energy bin, how many ways can we put n sub n identical particles into d sub n slots. So he has this clever trick in the book. So we represent the particles by dots and the partitions by crosses. <coughs> so here's 
one, two, three, four, five, six, seven particles in five boxes. One, two, three, four, five. There's nobody in the last box. Here I've moved one of them from this middle box to the end box. So if we can count up dots and crosses, then uh, we're set. So there's n sub n dots, but we only need d sub n minus 1 crosses. Because we just need a, a cross for the partitions between them, and we don't have to worry about the ends. So if they were distinguishable, there'd be n sub n plus d sub n minus 1 factorial arrangements. But if they're indistinguishable, which we know they are, then we have to divide by the permutations of the dots. So we divide by n sub n factorial. You can also interchange the crosses, but that doesn't do anything because they're just abstractions of telling <coughs> us about different states. So we also divide by d sub n minus 1 factorial. Now we get, when we put in all the possible energy levels, we get a product of that. <coughs> so now we'd like to calculate the most probable configuration. We want to find the maximum of Q. So which way of distributing the particles in different energy bins is most likely because it has the most ways of doing it. But we want to keep the total number of particles fixed. sum over the number in each energy level. They should add up to the total number n. And we want the total energy fixed. So if I sum over the number in each energy level times the energy of that level, it should add up some, to some total energy E. And uh, since we're all familiar with Lagrange multipliers, first of all, we know that log is monotonic, so maximizing Q is the same as maximizing log Q. And then we can just put in some Lagrange multipliers alpha and beta that impose our constraint. It's 
So if I maximize not only over the n sub i's, but also over an alpha and beta, that means the derivative of this function with respect to alpha vanishes, which means our constraint will be satisfied for the number, and the derivative with respect to beta will vanish, so the energy constraint will be satisfied. So we'll do it the wrong way first. going to be zero at the end. Um, so we haven't, we haven't figured out what n sub n are. So n sub n are variables, and we're searching over the space of all possible n sub n's to find the, config, the set of n sub n's that gives the maximum value of q. Like the, the term that you have inside of the data, yeah. e equals the other thing. So no matter what it is, it's going to be zero. So I think I misinterpreted it. Well, if we knew what the n sub n's were, then it will be zero. We're trying to find out what the <coughs> n's, n sub n's are that maximize q and satisfy some fixed energy. So we don't know them in advance. We're trying to find the n sub n's. Well, we didn't define e equals the sum over n sub n. Well, E is what the total energy is, and N is what the total energy is. But we want to find a solution that satisfies that we have the right total energy and the right total number of particles. So once we find the solution and plug it back in, these things will be zero. But we don't know the solution yet, so we can't plug it in. So it's not zero, so we can maximize over it. So right, if you, you, maximize, if you want to maximize over a function of x, you don't plug in the value of x first. You plot the function of x, find x that's the maximum. And then at that value, the derivative will be 0, because it's the maximum. So for the distinguishable case, it was n choose n sub n. So when we take the log of that, we'll get a log n factorial. There's a log n factorial out front. Then there was a product. So when we take the log of a product, we get a sum. There was a d sub n to the n sub n. So we get n sub n log d sub n. And there was an n sub n factorial on the bottom. And uh, to save space, I'm going to call this thing in brackets C sub n, constraint for n, and this is the constraint for energy. So we'll have alpha C sub n plus beta C sub e. So now, if we're actually interested in things with more than 100 particles, or 1,000, depending on how good approximation you want, we can use Stirling's approximation. Log of z factorial is almost z log z minus z. For large z.
so we can apply that to each term in here. Well, actually, what am I talking about? We only have to apply it to terms with log of n factorial. So we have n sub n log d sub n minus n sub n log n sub n plus n sub n. And then I'll take, pick out these terms in here that uh, are summed over. So there's a minus alpha n sub n minus beta n sub n e sub n. And then there's some terms that are outside of the sum. There's a log n factorial, an alpha n, and a beta e. So now if I maximize over the n sub n's, I'll get a piece from here, log d sub n. And if I differentiate n log n, uh, I get a 1 over n <coughs> log, and then n times 1 over n. But that cancels. When I differentiate that guy, I get a plus one. We're trying to find the maximum, so the derivative should be zero. But now we can solve for n sub n. see in the end is that for large energies, the occupation number is exponentially suppressed relative to the degeneracy. So we expect typically this n sub n is a small number compared to d sub n. Now for real particles, we just have So Q had a d sub n factorial on top, an n sub n factorial on the bottom, a d sub n minus n sub n factorial on the bottom. And now, to apply Stirling's formula, we need to apply it to all three terms. So we need the degeneracy to be large, the occupation number to be large, and the degeneracy minus the occupation number to be large. So we saw in hydrogen, <coughs> for example, d sub n grew like little n squared. So once we get up to reasonable, if we, if we have lots of electrons, we're going to fill up to very high le energy levels. It means there's going to be a big degeneracy. Or if you think of the free free electron gas, it's it almost time. Free electron gas, the the degeneracy grew rapidly with K. So, and it, in the end, we'll find that n sub n is exponentially small compared to d sub n. 
So we'll, we'll make that approximation. Then we'll find, uh, using Sterling's formula, some terms outside of the sum like before and then if we maximize g with respect to n sub n just like before we'll get a log n sub n we'll also get a log d sub n minus n sub n and the same minus alpha minus beta e sub n so when we solve for n sub n get d sub n over e to the alpha plus beta e plus 1. So again, when this term is going to turn out to be positive, beta will be positive, so for large energies, we'll get an exponential suppression. And then we'll finish up next time. Are there any questions?